Open the podcast doors, Hal. It's Kubrick's Universe, the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Hey, guys and gals, children of all ages. As I'm sure you're all aware, this year, 2018, marked the 50th anniversary of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, originally released in April of 1968. Now, in 2018, which may or may not be the year of the Star Child, according to the Chinese Zodiac, (laughs) we've seen a massive, renewed interest from countless film fans and academics alike, as well as many, many screenings, presentations, and events worldwide, all of which have served to celebrate this momentous movie. In today's episode, Kubrick's Universe and the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society is proud to present one of these such celebrations. 2001 Beyond 50. It was a day of talks, music, and art, celebrating a half century of Kubrick's masterwork. And it featured experts and scholars, as well as people who worked on the film. This was presented by the Center for Film, Television, and Screen Studies at Bangor University in Wales. Now, our good friend, Professor Nathan Abrams, actually organized this event, and it took place back on the 16th of June, 2018. It was a full-day event, and we're now very pleased to present it to you in a special multi-part series. So, here's part one, with a brief introduction by event organizer Nathan Abrams, and it's followed by an introduction to 2001 by Piers Bazzani, who is, of course, author of the indispensable books 2001, Filming the Future, and Toshin's The Making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. So, without further ado... Here we go. Welcome to Bangor. Um, it's great to see so many of you here. Um, I'm Nathan Abrams. Um, I'm uh, the uh, wedding planner for today. I'm going to herd this event. It, it's a pleasure to be having this today. I think this is the only event of its kind being held in the UK. I'm not to say there aren't other events celebrating 2001 but, uh, in the UK, but there's been stuff at Cannes and in Frankfurt and um, it's fantastic that so many of you have come today and also that we've got our esteemed guests, um, some of whom worked with Stanley and on the film, to talk about their experiences, which will happen at um, half past seven this evening. So um, we'll stick to the running order. So for for the first um, half an hour, we'll be myself and then Piers Bizzoni is going to introduce uh, the day. At half past two, we're going to have a panel of um, experts talking about the film, from, from kind of a non-film perspective. I mean, one of the things that fascinates me about 2001, it isn't just a revolutionary film uh, in terms of science fiction and film, but many people have seen this film 
um, and it's influenced perhaps their disciplines. So we've got a variety of disciplines represented in psychology, artificial intelligence, computer science, evolutionary biology, um, philosophy and religion, mental health and psychiatry. Um, and to give you a kind of range of perspectives from outside um, the discipline, then at 4.30 we'll have three film experts talking about the film. Um, and again, this is going to be quite informal. I don't envisage this, uh, so I look at the academics here, as an academic conference. In, in Welsh, they kept calling this a cynhadledd. I was like, nah, digwyddiad, it's an event, not a conference. Um, so we try to keep this informal and leave plenty of time for questions. Half past five, I'll have to take you all upstairs to um, uh, PJ Hall in the old building for our concert. Um, and then we'll come back down for supper. Half past seven, we'll be back in here with our panel of uh, people who worked on the film and with Stanley. And then we'll show a film which will be introduced by Jan at nine o'clock this evening. Again, thank you very much for coming. Thank you to guests for coming. Thank you for those agreeing to speak. And um, I'm going to hand over to Piers. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here, as a certain bureaucrat uh, said as he arrived on the moon in the movie. Um, has everyone here in the room, I assume you've all seen the movie and you're all familiar with it, young and old alike. Okay. Well, um, we've got a lot of experts who are going to be uh, talking and giving sessions today, a lot of academics. My job, I think, really, is just to introduce the general themes of why this movie is still interesting half a century after it was made, not only interesting, still culturally and artistically and philosophically important. Uh, there are events going on here at Bangor. There are, uh, there's been a, uh, a special re-release of the film, remastered from original negative components in Cannes. There's a big exhibition going on in Frankfurt. Uh, this is one of those movies that refuses just to go into the realms of history and die away and, oh, you know, some old science fiction movie. It is absolutely unremarkable, uh, absolutely remarkable how it hasn't... <laughs> sorry. It's absolutely remarkable how it refuses to date, and I'm here to explain a little bit why and just to get the creative and mental juices flowing for the conversations for the rest of the day. Um, here is Stanley Kubrick, this is the man who really spearheaded the making of this movie, who decided it should be made. It's Stanley who said, I want to make the proverbial good science fiction movie. Up until when 2001 was made, there hadn't really been a truly great science fiction movie. Uh, there was one called The Day the Earth Stood Still, where an alien arrives in a flying saucer uh, with a tall uh, silver robot called Gort, and it's, um, it's a we shouldn't be building nuclear weapons message movie. It's great. Is it science fiction? No, it's more of an allegory of human stupidity. There was a movie called Forbidden Planet, where a flying saucer goes off to an alien world where the aliens have long since died off, but they've left their technologies as a remnant. And Robbie the Robot is a very, very famous uh, creation. Brilliant prop by the standards of the 1950s. But again, was this a science fiction movie? Well, it proposed a flying saucer traveling to uh, you know, a planet around another star as though that was easy, as though you could just jump in a sort of spaceship and, and do it. That's not science. That's speculation or fantasy. And so Stanley looked at the, all of these movies. You know, he went through loads of movies. And he said, well... It's not really science fiction. I don't believe in any of this stuff. So he was at great pains to make 2001 A Space Odyssey utterly believable. And he was at such pains that it drove the people around him mad because he was asking them, no, don't think about what we're going to do tomorrow or next week or next year. 
seriously think about what might be possible 30 or 40 years from the point where we're making this movie. And those efforts were so good that 2001 A Space Odyssey not only has caught up with modern times, modern times, in many respects, have yet to catch up with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Well, first and foremost, the people who love this movie love it because it presents them with profound mysteries and doesn't give them answers. The people who hate this movie hate this movie because it presents them with profound questions and doesn't give them answers. It's all about, well, what is it about? Is it about spacemen encountering aliens? Up to a point, but you don't see the aliens. And actually, um, I went to see this movie. I took my wife and my, my grown-up children to see this movie for, for the first time a couple of years ago. I refused to let them watch it on television. And uh, they all came out stunned, thinking it was a great movie, and they completely understood what all the fuss was about. And my kids have seen every single special effect movie ever were saying, how did they do that? That was amazing. And our boy said, oh, I loved all that hippy-trippy stuff at the end. That was amazing. Wow, what a ride. And uh, I said to my wife, and I said, wasn't it brilliant that you never actually see the aliens? And she rounded on me almost angrily and said, what aliens? Well, you know, the monolith. The monolith is the cycle of life and death, she said. And I beamed and I said, oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's exactly why this movie is timeless. You bring your own opinions to it, your own ideas. If you enter 2001 A Space Odyssey with an open mind, you will leave with a mind that's even more open. And here is this eternal mystery we have about the unknown. And Olaf Stapleton, the science fiction writer, is particularly good on this. When we confront the unknown... We don't know whether to embrace it or to be afraid of it. And so you see the astronauts in 2001 and the apes in 2001 having this dual relationship with something they don't understand. Is it good? Is it bad? The monoliths tinkering in human destiny. Is it good? Is it bad? In the Western world, the idea of, uh, of something being good and bad is familiar to us. But in Eastern philosophies, it's more like one thing is not good, another thing is not bad. They're more yin and yang, opposing forces that together create some kind of a whole. It's fascinating in 2001 that violence plays such a significant role in human progress. Violence also plays a significant role in determining whether it's a human or an artificial intelligence that will proceed to the next step and meet the monolith. So is violence a good thing or a bad thing? Again, the movie doesn't answer that question. Everywhere you go, questions, questions, questions. The question I get asked more often than any other when I lecture on this movie is, yeah, but what did that hotel room at the, at the end mean? What did the baby mean? What does the end of that movie mean? Um, it's really, really great that people come away puzzled because too many movies just provide everything neatly encapsulated for you, give you all the answers, and the music cues you, at this point you should be feeling fearful, or at this point you should be feeling happy and relieved that the hero and the heroine have, have got away with it. Even as a kid, and I saw this movie when I was nine years old, I understood that it was absolutely implacably refusing to step out of the screen, touch me on the shoulder and say, come on, we'll walk you through the plot here. I knew something was amiss with this movie, but I was thrilled. I thought I'd just gone on the world's best fairground ride. My mum and dad came out shaking their heads saying, what was all that about? Did you understand a word of that? What was all that about? 
And I was kind of embarrassed because I thought it was thrilling. And I was, you know, when you're a kid, you're hurt if your parents don't share your enthusiasm. And I almost burst into tears. And I said, it wasn't about anything. It was just a thing that you watch. <laughs> Forty years later, I realized I was absolutely right. It's not about something. It's about the, having the experience of going on that journey. It, Stanley Kubrick went to a huge effort to create the world's first virtual reality experience. You don't watch the movie, you are immersed in it. You don't watch Dave Bauman go through the Stargate. You see the Stargate from the point of view of someone going through the Stargate. Uh, that immersiveness, that shock to the senses. There's no other movie in the late 1960s, and even today, that remotely compares with the austere quality of this movie, which is... That austerity doesn't take any prisoners, it doesn't hold your hand, it just throws you into an utterly alien situation. There's no dial there's twenty minutes of dialogue in a two and a half hour movie. You know, this was very, very, very challenging kind of deal for people, and yet because it doesn't provide any of these easy options, that's why like a pristine work of art, like a painting from the fourteen hundreds whose inner clues were still trying to work out why it survives, why it stands the test of time. It is just itself. It's not a product of the 1960s counterculture. It's not a response to Vietnam. It's not one of the cycles of uh, kooky movies with Cary Grant and, and, uh, and, and all of these people. It's absolutely just its own thing. It's actually like the Apollo 11 moon landing. The moon landing sprung out of the 1960s as this extraordinary accomplishment, not just in technology, but in management and history and in political will. And we look back on that and we think, oh, that was out of nowhere. And it's sort of also gone back to being out of nowhere. You think, how did that happen? It's fantastic when something bubbles up out of the culture almost as a standalone artifact. And 2001 A Space Odyssey and the real moon landings were standalone artifacts. And we're still, 50 years later, trying to understand both of them. We're trying to understand, still, what's 2001 about? We're trying to understand, still, why haven't we gone back to moon, the moon after half a century, even though we've got the technology to do it more cheaply? I think it's magnificent when you have artifacts that create these puzzles, when human beings, almost as if in a trance, create something that is outside themselves. And then that is as close as I, I think we can get to uh, the sense of awe, if you like, the necessary sense of awe and wonder at something that is above and beyond the ordinary individual human experience. And I think 2001 is a movie that still stimulates awe and wonder for those who are prepared to accept it in the right way. Being in a, what's that word, um, a meditative state of mind while you're watching 2001 is probably a good idea. But suppose you're not a meditative kind of person. Suppose you're more of a hardware geek. Well, I'm both. I'm meditative and a hardware geek. And every time I see this movie, I am absolutely and utterly thrilled by no matter how closely you look at each and every single frame, you see something interesting. The majority of science fiction movies these days, even in big budget, you've got the hero kissing the heroine, you've got some flashing lights, and then everything fades to dark in the background because they want to save money by not showing you anything behind. 
In 2001, everything is brightly lit, everything is clearly visible, and everything is utterly convincing. And that takes you on this compelling notion of, oh, right, it's just a movie, but that spaceship discovery, in some alternative world, it's sort of out there somewhere. It's so real, it must exist. And that, too, is one of the astonishing aspects of this movie, that it was physical. You don't look at it and say, oh, that's obviously a computer-generated special effect. So there's always some part of you you're where, where your belief is not entirely suspend, suspended. Uh, in 2001, you always feel, and you know, because there were no computer effects in those days, you know that what you're looking at must have been in front of the camera. And that, too, is compellingly real. And so I've always described 2001 as an alternative reality. It's a real space program that sort of happened one inch to the left of real life. It is utterly convincing, and that, again, is one of the things that makes this movie totally stand out, because there's no point where the light fades to try and cover up a cheap trick. There's no point where polystyrene props uh, or, or flashing lights seem kind of crap. Everything is super, super superb in this movie. Now, what does hyperrealism do to us? Hyperrealism is something that um, actually Doug Trumbull and others are, are exploring now, that, too, creates a meditative condition because you can no longer separate yourself from what you're seeing. You're not just looking at a, you know, a flickering image on a screen. You are absolutely... It feels as if you could reach out and touch something. And that's a very, very important contribution that this movie has made to the discussion about what does media mean? What does it mean to go and see a movie or have an experience? And now people are really trying to create virtual worlds that from our sensory point of view, are indistinguishable from real life. And that was one of the things, certainly, that Stanley was interested in. How do we really give audiences the subjective feeling that they're in this movie rather than just watching it? And that's why it was made on these huge curving, these huge curving cinerama screens. And I wonder today whether or not the cinema experience is very slightly in danger because watching something like 2001 at home on a little screen, even if it's a big telly, it's not the same as watching it on a huge screen and also watching it with an audience. So that when you're sort of reading in shock or gasping at some wonderful thing, the whole audience is doing it with you. And that's what I mean by the reverential experience of this movie because reverence or these things tend to happen in, with a community experience. And 2001 on the big screen is certainly one of those amazing community experiences. And I think it's one of the great, great, great arguments of keeping cinema big. Okay, so you're going to do it digitally, and you're going to do it with modern technologies. There's not going to be films running through the cameras anymore. But the quality of the image is always going to be important. The sharpness, the vividness, and the scale. Let's keep cinema big. Technology. What do we see here? We see a guy in a spacesuit. Everything is absolutely technically sensible here. You see the ribbing that is that around the spacesuit. When Stanley was making this movie, he, um, American astronauts were making the first spacewalks, and their suits were swelling up because uh, they were like the Michelin Man. Because in the vacuum of space, you put air inside the suits. They thought they'd solved that problem. They hadn't. The first American spacewalker, Ed White, nearly couldn't get back into his spaceship. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Cold War divide, Alexei Leonov nearly died not being able to get back into his spaceship. And he actually had to undo a bit of his suit and let some air out, which was dangerous in itself, in order to make his suit small enough that he could climb back inside. 
Well, Harry Langer and uh, Tony Masters and all the production designers working on the spacesuits, they'd got that problem figured. You see these ribs around, the ribs around the arm, and the whole suit's ribbed here. The, what, the little ribs here would be made out of very, very stiff cord, really strong, like cotton, so that when the suit ballooned out, it would balloon out there, balloon out there, balloon out there, but it wouldn't balloon out so that you're like a Michelin man. It's called the constant volume principle. That's just one tiny, tiny, tiny detail among thousands of details in 2001 that they got absolutely right. So that when we look at these spacesuits, we think, oh, they're still looking more sort of streamlined and futuristic and neat than the real spacesuits that they're currently using on the International Space Station. Now we get to the argument where I'm talking about, if you look about science fiction movies from 50 years ago, most of it is so wrong it's laughable. 2001 is unique in being a science fiction film that gets many things wrong in such a fascinating way that they're still right. What do I mean by that? Look at the buttons. These are absolutely correct and they're wonderful. But, and they're super realistic. And people will turn around to me and say, ah, well, now we've got touch screens and touch pads and all of this sort of thing, so aren't all of those buttons in 2001 wrong? And I say, well, yes and no. In our world, buttons don't exist anymore. But in the world of astronauts, buttons and switches are still incredibly important. Because suppose you are doing everything with a touch screen and you're saying, oh, swipe left to turn the engine on. Oh, no, I didn't move on, I'm drifting, oh, swipe, no good. Not only do you have buttons in switches and switches in spaceships, not only will you continue to have buttons and switches in spaceships, but you will have buttons and switches to turn on the button and switch to turn on the next button. You do things in a sequence because you cannot, 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 cannot make a mistake in a spaceship. And buttons and switches are very definite things. And there's a lovely sequence in 2001 where Dave Bauman is about to blow himself out of the, of the airlock of his pod. Now, does he just press a button and go? No. He presses a button, and then a, an alarm comes on, telling him, oh, you've pressed a dangerous button there. And then he presses another sequence of buttons, and then says, so are you really, really, really sure you want to do this? And then he presses the last buttons to, to activate it. So in 2001, what I mean by getting things so wrong, that they're, uh, getting things wrong and right at the same time, is that kids say, oh, it's all swipe screens today. Uh, and I say, well, there's an argument to, to be had about this. There's an argument to be had about the relationship between the astronauts and the controls and cockpits in this movie. It's not about wrong and right, in fact. It's about questions. What will the control panels of the future really look like? What will be the relationship between the, you know, the mechanical and the electronic? How will they function? So, again, for a, a movie that's made half a century ago, it's not like Star Trek where you say, oh, that's so out of date. We're still discussing the actual ergonomics of 2001's cockpits. Here's another one. Ever since 1905, when Russian rocket theorist Konstantin Tsiolkovsky first proposed the use of liquid rocket engines to get into space, and first proposed that we might live in space, artificial gravity was the big thing. And that couldn't help but infect the, uh, the thinking and the dreams of space planners all through the 20th century, well into the 1950s, well into the real era of, of the first missions to the moon and beyond. So 
Then it turned out, when we built the real International Space Station, that zero gravity, or microgravity as it's technically properly known, is actually the thing you want to study. You actually want to exploit that so that you can uh, analyze and investigate the way materials behave in, 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 let's call it for the sake of convenience, zero gravity. For instance, a globule of water under its own surface tension will turn into a perfect sphere in zero gravity. Um, if you mix up uh, a jar of chemicals in zero gravity, the, the lightweight uh, stuff uh, on Earth would stay at the top and the heavier elements would sink to the bottom and you don't get a, an even result when it cools, for instance. But in space, you can keep the mixture absolutely even. So you can do things like making incredibly pure silicon uh, crystals. I mean, of, an, of a purity of, an, of density distribution that is unlike anything possible on Earth. So zero gravity, this weightlessness thing, is exactly why we have built the International Space Station. Does that mean, then, that this space station, one of the most glorious images on all of film, is wrong? Well, for the last 20 or 30 years, it has appeared so. But now a new generation of space entrepreneurs is saying, well, we don't just want to do science in space. We do actually want to get people paying for the experience of living in space. And so we would actually like to build small rotating space stations so that they can have a more comfortable environment. So again, here's another example where 2001 is right and wrong at the same time. The questions that it arises, that, uh, that it uh, springs up about the future of technology and, uh, are continually ambiguous. It seems so compelling, this vision. It seems so obvious. It's just a wheel in space made out of mechanical bits. We know how to do this. Why haven't we done it? Is it economic? Is the problem simply that we can't afford it? Well, we can afford anything if we really want to. Is the problem that we don't actually want gravity? We want this zero gravity that the, the current International Space Station exploits? We don't know. You look at this on screen and you, you can reach out and touch it and you say, it's so obvious we should be able to do that. It's so obvious that we should be up there. You know, it's within our grasp. And 17 years after the year 2001 has actually passed, we still don't have this space station. And yet people are telling us, soon, soon, soon we'll have them. I'm going to wrap up. Just a very, very a quick couple of points. The first is that there's a dark message in 2001 as well, as well as a message of optimism. And the dark message is the sterility of the corporate environment, the sterility of the effect that technology can have on the human psyche. And in our Twitter age and our Facebook age, where even democracy is being messed around by the forces of algorithms, 2001 is very prescient on the ambiguous and difficult elements involved in the relationship between human beings and technology. 2001 is so often described as an optimistic movie because of the Star Child ending, but it also carries dire warnings about machinery. But primarily, if I had to say in one sentence what 2001 about is about, I'd say it's about evolution. Who or what are we? Are we apes or were we apes? Are we humans or are we animals? And in the future, will we be humans or will we be machines or will we be both or neither? Is a machine biological? Well, um, Richard Dawkins, the famous biologist, says, if you went to a planet and you found a cogwheel on the planet and that was all you found, 
you would have to say life was here. Machinery is biology. Um, and so the question in this movie is, will the machinery supplant us? Will we evolve to become machine-like? Or will there be some kind of a, a battle, a sort of a cultural battle between AI and human beings? Elon Musk, no stranger to technology, he's building rockets that actually work. He's a stunning guy. But even this ultra-geek says, watch out for AI, it's an existential threat to humanity. And that too is a, a problem that the movie expressly poses. It says we could evolve with the help of aliens or destiny or call it what you will, into some higher order, or we could find ourselves in a life or death struggle with the machines that we ourselves have created. I hope I've said enough now, and I know Nathan wants me to shut up, to just bubble up and remind you that this movie throws up a hell of a lot of fascinating questions, and still, that's why after half a century, we're still talking about it. Thank you. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And hey, we're going to continue this presentation of 2001 Beyond 50 in the next episode of Kubrick's Universe. Big thanks to Nathan Abrams for allowing us to broadcast this one-of-a-kind event and also to Piers Bazzani for his great talk to kick off this series. Once again, ginormous thanks... To our show's producer and editor, my friend, Stephen Rigg, and also my friends from the Stanley Kubrick Appreciation Society, James Marinaccio and Mark Lentz, for their invaluable research, time, and dedication. And hey, thanks additionally to James Marinaccio for choosing the outro music for this particular episode, which is by The Birds. And it's taken from their 1968 album, The Notorious Bird Brothers, Space Odyssey, which was the final track on this particular album, is a musical retelling of Arthur C. Clarke's short story, The Sentinel, which was, of course, also the inspiration for Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Now, this song makes extensive use of the iconic Moog modular synthesizer, and it features a droning, dirge-like melody. And I'll just leave you with a cool little bit of trivia. Since the song Space Odyssey actually predates the release of Kubrick's film, songwriters Roger McGuinn and Robert J. Hippard composed lyrics that referred to a pyramid being found on the moon as was the case in The Sentinel. But as we all know, said pyramid was later replaced by Kubrick and Clark with a rectangular monolith in both the film and the accompanying novelization. I'm Jason Furlong saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the light side of the moon. Children from the world We
It's Kubrick's universe. We just live in it. We have taken very thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human error. Thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick Podcast. Come back soon.